The following is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. Welcome everyone to this edition of Election Connection on Forward Radio. WFMP 106.5 FM, your community all-volunteer radio station. We are very fortunate today because we have as our guest Karen Faulkner, who is running for Kentucky 30th District Court Judge, 8th Division. That's a mouthful. It is. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd just like to insert a little clarification here. Forward Radio does not endorse any particular candidates or pieces of legislation, but we do endorse the need for an informed electorate. As such, we offer equal time to all registered candidates for any particular office, and you can get in touch with us at forwardradio.org. What I'd like to do, first of all, is um, kind of unpack all of that, districts and divisions that we Louisvillians have to navigate going through on our ballot. Can you um, explain what District 30, Division 8 Yeah, means? sure. Happy to. Yes. So um, the 30th Judicial District is just Jefferson County. So there are judicial districts mm-hmm. all throughout Kentucky, and Jefferson County is big enough to be its own judicial district. Some of the smaller counties will be multiple counties in a judicial district. So that covers the 30th. Mm -hmm. And then district court is Mm -hmm. the lower level courts. Um, They handle misdemeanors, traffic cases, probate, juvenile, and a couple specialty courts. And then division eight is just the division number that is assigned to the seat that I'm running to. It is a countywide race though. Is nonpartisan, so uh-huh. everyone in Jefferson County can vote for me. You just have to make sure you flip the ballot to the back. I know it's a little intimidating to it see is. all those judge candidates. Forty-three, forty-three wow. judicial races on the ballot. They, why? <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> well, every single race is up this year, so that's uh-huh. what what the issue is. So there's forty-three judicial elections in Jefferson County that can be voted on. Mm-hmm. Not every one of them is contested though. So some of them will be easy. You you check the box or you don't check the box, but there's not two people to choose from. Okay. And in this case with you there are two two people. That's correct. To choose from. So I guess you explained a little bit about what your duties are as the 30th district judge. It doesn't involve criminal cases. It's it does. It does. It does. Yeah. So district court handles mainly criminal issues. Oh, okay. Um, I would say about 80% of the workload is criminal issues. And it's starting with traffic tickets to the lower level misdemeanors. So anything that's going to be 365 days or less of jail time. And then the first look at felonies. So when a felony case comes in to determine whether or not it should remain in district court or a probable cause hearing will happen for it to go up to circuit court. And then there's also um, juvenile court, which uh, also is a, a criminal jurisdictional court. But in juvenile court, the district court handles both misdemeanors and felonies 
unless there's a motion to waive the child up to circuit court. That's the only way that a, a child will come out of district court. Mm -hmm. And then we have all of the other courts that district court also handles, which is probate court, small claims, mental inquest, drug treatment court, and veterans court. Wow. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's one thing I saw on your website that says you are a Federal Defender Conflict Council. Could you explain what that is? Sure. So I actually do conflict work for the Department of Public Advocacy, which is the out in the state, anyone, any non-Jefferson County case is the Department of Public Advocacy. And I've done that work in specific uh, regions that are close to Louisville. I do conflict work for the Louisville Metro Public Defender which is our state public defender. And then I do conflict work for the Western District of Kentucky as a federal defender. And the concept of conflict work, my background, I was a public defender for six and a half years. I've always worked on the defense side and always worked with an indigent population. And even with me moving to my own private practice, I felt like it was very important for me to continue that work and to give back. And so the concept is, is when there's a case that comes forward that the regular public defender's office can't handle for various reasons mm -hmm. because there's a conflict within the office or maybe there's two co-defendants, so they need to move one of the co-defendants outside the office, then I'll get a call uh, and be asked to handle that case and I can choose to accept it or not. I see. Mm -hmm. So it has more to do with a conflict in terms of the functions of the office rather than a conflict between the perpetrator and the victim. <laughs> oh, that's correct, yeah. Um, most often it, it is an issue of the fact that they are representing multiple co-defendants in a case that have contentious defenses and they don't want to waive. Every defendant's given that right to choose whether or not they want to waive the potential conflict because Mm -hmm. Every public defender works solo on their cases, but they are in the office together and there's a potential, you know, it could be discussed or facts could come out. Mm -hmm. And if the defendant doesn't want to waive, then it, it goes outside. With the federal defender cases, I get similar type cases, but also cases that may have gone up on appeal and there was an issue with a conflict between the defendant and the office that the appeal around the issue was, you know, maybe that they weren't happy with their attorney or something along those lines. When it came back down, they just go ahead and move that out. Okay. So have you ever been a judge or would this be your first? This will be my first time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm running in an open seat. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. So the other thing I looked and saw on your website was, says you are court-appointed guardian ad litem for the Jefferson Family Court Division 9. And could you explain what that is? Sure. Uh, it's another one of my uh, appointed positions where I am seeking to continue to assist those who are in need of counsel. As a guardian ad litem, I represent both children as well as parents who are involved in the dependency, neglect, and abuse system. And so... The children are children that have been neglected or abused, that um, Child Protective Services has been involved with. The parents are parents who 
have had their children removed or have had some interaction with Child Protective Services that rose to the level that we need some sort of court action. Of course, every parent is a constitutional right to raise your own family, so every, every parent has rights. And when the state comes in to intervene and potentially take those rights away, they're entitled to counsel. Of course, children, by the nature of being children, unable to represent themselves, are entitled to counsel in many actions. But that's my specific role in Division Nine. So you can either represent parents or you can represent children? Yes. Okay. And so... I originally started as just a parent's attorney. I was hired specifically to, to be a parent's attorney and represent the parents. There was a change in law that required us to do both, which I welcomed. I do enjoy both roles. And so now every uh, guardian ad litem on the docket represents both children and parents. And the children you know, just get automatically assigned to us with the parents, it's uh, again where they explain the case and we decide whether we can handle it. I also wanted to ask you what drew you to the career of law in the first place? What was it that attracted you? I, I kind of <laughs> took a little bit of an interesting path. I came to Louisville because I was recruited to U of L as a creative writing major. Oh, wow. So I uh, was a governor's school for the arts kid and I was really into writing and theater. Uh, I started doing uh, theater in Louisville as well. And I really enjoyed it. I had um, published various poetry and things along those lines, but something was kind of drawing me into more um, social movement, social change. And I, I am a first-generation college graduate and a first-generation lawyer in my family. I have a cousin who is also a first-generation college mm -hmm. graduate and lawyer. And she's about 12 years older than me. And when I was younger, she had gone down to South Africa while they were having civil unrest, was part of the team that helped work on rebuilding government and rebuilding their constitution. And I just thought that was really fantastic for her to lend herself and offer that help. And so that's kind of what shifted my move towards getting a legal degree. And I was originally thinking I was gonna do civil rights work. And ultimately, when I was in law school, I had a professor who's now a judge, Judge Brian Edwards, who I really became friends with he was a supporter of mine, encourager of mine, and he really thought I would be a good fit at the public defender's office. The work that you do at the public defender's office aligned with my mission, but also I am a natural trial attorney. With my theater background and writing, um, getting in front of a judge and arguing for a client and being able to tell a client's story is something I'm passionate about and is pretty natural for me. So that's what led me to the public defender's office mm -hmm. and really kick-started where I am today. Without talking about any specific cases, because I know you can't do that, I'm wondering if, if you can 
talk to me a little bit about any lessons that you've gleaned from the cases that you've worked on. Sure. I have handled cases from and tried cases from tra- minor traffic tickets to DUI to murder, um, the whole gambit. Mm-hmm. I'm always learning and will continue to learn. But I think that the thing that is probably what I can hang on to most is the importance of not bringing your own expectations to the table, really meeting people where they are and trying to work with them in that capacity. Also, I definitely understand that I grew up in a privileged world and a privileged life. I had a mother and father who worked very hard, who stayed together, who worked hard to get their children through school, put them you know, into college, and were with me every step of the way. Many of my clients don't have that kind of support, don't kind of have the additional benefits that that I had. And really understanding humans and who people are and how they work and why they work is so important. Mm-hmm. And figuring out, one, how do we solve the problem? How do we make sure that this person is benefited from the experience of going through the court system. Just going to jail is not the answer. It does not change people's, most people's perspective in the way that everyone believes that it does. Really figuring out what they truly need, what was the reason behind how we got here, and meeting them where they are Mm -hmm. is the way that we make real change. And really starting to understand that and figure out how to convey that message and everyone's human story to the court is um, not only an important lesson that I learned in my cases, but in life. You know, coming to a situation with an open mind and an open heart and not trying to put your own perspective on it is imperative. I would think also with your theatrical background, playing different roles would also give you a pathway into other people's perspectives. 100%. Yeah. 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 That's, you know, that's, that is a privilege to be able to encounter people of all different walks of life that, you know, we in our day-to-day living, most of us don't have that opportunity. Yeah. I'm not sure you could still maintain that as a judge because as a judge you have to kind of maintain your distance and you know not get to know them on a more personal level like you would as a lawyer. Is that correct? Well, I think to an extent. Um, the role is definitely different. The, the role of the judiciary is to be the gatekeeper rather than the individual you know holding the hand of the defendant or hand of of the the victim in the case but there are avenues especially in district court where we can look at actually understanding and humanizing the people that come before you mm-hmm. um, especially when making rulings on issues like bond or sentencing 
And when we're looking at those specialty courts that I talked about, where individuals are in drug treatment court or mental health court or veterans treatment court, the judge's role in those courts are much different. They are to be the cheerleader and to be hopefully part of the success story rather than someone who's making decisions or judgments uh, upon the case, there's much more of a human connection there. So are you involved in these other courts as well as a district judge? Yes. So the way that district court works is there is a rotation. So Division 8 is not assigned. Division 8 doesn't mean I will do criminal. It means I will become a district court judge in that didn't quite happen during the pandemic or other reasons why the six month mark wouldn't work. But every six months there's a rotation so that the judges move from courtroom to courtroom. So you have the opportunity to be in front of a different judge. Mm -hmm. So throughout my time serving on the bench, I will serve in all of the capacities. The specialty courts, those are extra, they're separate. So judges volunteer for those. Uh, right now, you know, there are several judges that serve in those roles, but any judge can absolutely serve in, in any of those courts or any other additional specialty courts that we're able to get started. There are lots of things that judges do besides sitting in court. So... When a judge volunteers to do a specialty court, they're volunteering to take on those additional dockets or maybe go to uh, graduations or take on um, the looks at preparing for those dockets, additional things. They might be looking at doing less on their regular dockets because they're doing those, those specialty dockets. District court judges are also on emergency call. And so after hours when search warrants come in or emergency protective orders, warrants, those all go to the district court judges. And some of our judges, which I think is very important work, not all of them, but some of them, Judge Burke, for an example, goes down to Frankfurt on her time and volunteers her time to lobby Frankfurt to make sure that we have funding for drug court, to make sure we have funding for these specialty courts. Mm -hmm. So the role of a district court judge is to be a leader in the community and to do these additional things, I do think it's part of the job. Mm -hmm. You mentioned COVID at one point. I'm wondering, are there other things that happened under COVID that affected the judicial system and that are still with us? Well, COVID, especially in district court and somewhat in circuit court really did slow things down and caused, especially in district court, the, the cases to back up exponentially. And ultimately we've worked hard to get beyond that backup, but there are some lingering things that are positive and there's some lingering things that are not positive about what we learned during COVID. Zoom court, I think, is a fantastic idea. Having the ability for people to access court remotely 
for any citizen who wants to watch court, for the loved ones of a victim or an accused who maybe cannot take a full day off work and go sit down in court all day long, but could tune in on Zoom until that case is called for five to 15 minutes. Or if it's not a major hearing for the attorneys or any of the parties to, to show up via Zoom is a much more efficient way to do things. Sometimes people will wait all day long, like I said, for a five to 15 minute court appearance mm -hmm. to just get a continuance or, or maybe to resolve it. But mm -hmm. a lot of it can be done more efficiently. So that's fantastic. COVID also brought problems with losing staff in the courthouse. Our clerks are still understaffed, underpaid. And There's, that is because they came down with COVID? Is that why? Or I think people had to move on from their jobs. COVID caused a week on, week off type situation. I mean, that's just pure speculation. I can't say for sure. But I know that I would really like to see more courts running more often. We don't have all the courts open, both in morning and afternoon docket. I think that need, that needs to happen. We don't have a backlog of cases, but you aren't able to get a court date. If you want to pass something a week, you have to get special permission. Pass dates are months away. Cases are being delayed. I think that is a negative. There are benefits. There are reasons. There are oftentimes it's important that cases get passed so that we can figure out whether there's enough discovery so that someone can get to a certain point in treatment. Many other reasons. But if you need to be heard by the judge in a quick fashion, that seemed to be a more difficult process than it was before COVID. Can you make any comment on the so-called school to prison pipeline because I hear that phrase being used a lot and I wonder what your thinking is on that. Yeah I think that the the concept of the school to prison pipeline is really bigger than the court system. It is the systemic racism and poverty and issues that we have beginning in the school system uh, leading to the court system and, and beyond. It is absolutely wrapped in the underfunding of certain schools, the over-policing in the schools, the look at children as little adults, I began as a juvenile public defender, so I began working with youth in our criminal system. And the research is very clear on the juvenile brain. It doesn't fully develop until age 21. The decisions that you're making at 10 years old, 12 years old, 16 years old are not rationally formed decisions that you and I would make today or someone with a healthy, fully matured brain. Not only are youth treated as little adults, but 
we also have some failures within the court system. What we see is that youth are not given the services that they need in the school system. They come into the dependency and neglect and abuse system that I talked about before. Those same children end up in status court, which is uh, the court that looks at offenses that are committed only because your status as a youth. So beyond control of the school, beyond control of your parent, habitual truancy. And then those same kids end up in juvenile court, and then we end up seeing them in adult court and ultimately in prison. Mm-hmm. What we have as a society is so many stop gaps where we can really be intervening and there is a much different look at our youth who are in poor, usually black and brown neighborhoods versus our youth that are going to private school or in a more privileged area. And ultimately, it is why we need to start looking at intervening, figuring out the why, but it it can't just be done in the court system. Mm -hmm. It has to be done on a bigger community and systemic basis. And that's hard. It is. That's hard because now you're looking at the individual from the time that they're born you know, did they get the right nutrition? Did they get the right parental love? Did they get the right, you know, resources that they need all the way? And, and I'm just thinking out loud here, rather than thinking in terms of departments like the school department, the parent department, the court system, you think in terms instead of the individual and how help and support can be based on individuals. Yeah. I mean, that's just what I'm thinking is maybe rearranging our thinking about rather than functions of specific offices. I don't know how that would work, but it just seems to me that things need to be more customized to the individual. Well, and that's what you're supposed to do in in the court setting, both the neglect and abuse docket as well as the juvenile court docket. But, you know, we are also suffering. Our CPS workers are incredibly under underfunded right now. No, They're, what is CPS? I'm sorry, Child Protective Services. Okay. And so the investigative workers, are about 20 of them, are doing a job of 100. And those individuals should be coming in. Some, some cases that Child Protective Services get involved in are just needs services cases. So the goal is for them to come in and say, okay, you know, if we can just give you this additional help, you can be more successful and your children can be more successful. Mm -hmm. But those kinds of cases can't even be helped right now because more priority has to go to the cases where children are really in danger or parents are really in danger, Mm -hmm. depending on the circumstances. Now, your opponent refers to her experience as a litigant and a victim and claims that, as such, she understands weaknesses and barriers to justice. And you've been giving me some of those weaknesses and barriers as well. And, and do you agree that these weaknesses and barriers are more skewed toward the black and brown and low-income communities in the court system? Absolutely. I do think that 
there are weaknesses and barriers in the court system because we continue to do the same thing and expect a different result. And one of the things that I've been extremely passionate about, I was part of the pilot project that started restorative justice, is the restorative justice program. And I've watched it expand. I've spoken on it on numerous occasions. And restorative justice gives a voice to both the victim and the accused, allows them to come to the table together and figure out what a just resolution would be. Mm-hmm. Of course, this can't be done on the most serious cases, but especially in district court, it's a fantastic model. And using your voice is a way for you to feel empowered as a victim. And hearing that voice is a way for someone to feel empathy for the actions that they've caused, especially with the younger minds that we're dealing with in court. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly important. I know my opponent, she's referring to her experiences in family court, which is a much different court system than district court. In district court, they actually have victims advocates that do work with the victims in order to partner them with prosecutors and, and make sure that there is that communication and discussion because of the change in law. They have the ability to voice their opinion to the court. I've represented victims in many criminal cases in that capacity where I've served as the attorney to also stand in and negotiate the case with the prosecutor, but also come into court and stand up as a party representing the victim in order to put their voice forward. So I do feel like, at least my experience in representing victims on the criminal side, there seems to be less barriers on the district court side. I do think that people that are not as familiar with the system or not as lucky to have a private attorney might have more problems interacting in the first place, figuring out how to navigate the system. But once the case gets moving, that additional piece of having a victim's advocate at the county attorney's office, I think helps and assists bridge that gap. Often my defense work, I don't want to say I'm at odds with them, but you know, I'm on the opposite side of the victim's advocate often in my, in my defense work. Um, but I really, respect the work they do, and I think they do a a pretty good job. If you just tuned in, this is Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM with me, your host, Ruth Newman, and our guest today, Karen Faulkner, who is running for 30th District Court Judge, 8th Division. So let us continue this wide-ranging conversation. So do you think that people, especially people who commit white-collar crimes and people who have money, are, are better represented in our judicial system than people who have to be assigned a public defender? Well, I'm a former public defender, and so I think very highly of the public defender system. Mm-hmm. The Louisville Metro Public Defender, their slogan is, the best legal minds that money can't buy. <laughs> and especially as a young attorney and uh, privately, 
when people would call me and I would find out who their public defender is, I'd say, oh, no, she's the best. She trained me, so you should stick with her. I think that the most hindrance of having a public defender is the volume of work that they have to deal with. These are very good, intelligent, smart attorneys who deal with criminal issues on a daily basis and who have handled more cases than some of the newer private attorneys that you might get privately. But it's an issue of time. When you have hundreds of cases so that you're working 80 hours a week, the advantage of having a private attorney can come with the ability to just spend more time on a case. The other advantage of having a public defender is the access to additional resources, such as an investigator and, and an expert that's paid for by the state. So I guess the answer is kind of loaded. As far as white collar crimes go, as far as the, the more high end charges, certainly if you have enough money that you can pay a lawyer to focus only on your case, you're going to get a better defense, even than hiring a private attorney that handles multiple cases. And the wealth barrier is a huge issue in the court system. Mm -hmm. If you have enough money, you're going to be able to pay a bail to get yourself out. You're going to be able to fight your case from the community. You're going to be able to hire whatever experts you need and pay for whatever transcripts or anything else along those lines and be able to pay an attorney enough money to focus solely on you. So that is a huge problem. But I never would speak ill of any of the public defenders. I think that they're all very good attorneys and very hardworking. They're just overwhelmed. <laughs> they're just overwhelmed. You know, I felt the same way. I mean, there was a reason why I eventually decided after almost seven years that I needed to move on to something else for my own mental health and work-life balance and, you know, my family and everything along those lines. So do you think that the restorative justice method would kind of help to take away those inequalities because it's not so much being on the attack in your defense and trying to, sh you know, show that you're right and they're wrong. It's more a matter of, as I see it, and maybe I'm wrong, just basic conflict resolution and having empathy, not being on the attack mode, but having empathy for the other side yeah. and, let, and seeing their vantage. Do you think restorative justice should have a bigger place in the justice system? Oh, I would love to see that. I think a lot more cases can go through the restorative justice program than currently do. The barrier right now is that the prosecutor's office, the county attorney's office, they have to refer the cases there. The only way they get there if the prosecutor agrees. Now, I would like to, as a judge, look at cases that I know would qualify for restorative justice and suggest that they get referred to restorative justice. I will say out of juvenile court, which is a completely different animal than adult court, a lot more referrals happen. Of course, that's where restorative justice started, and that was kind of pardon my pun, but the baby, you know, we started in juvenile court with the youth and we really see that model working well with that young mind. Mm -hmm. But at the adult court level, 
people make mistakes and really getting something out of it so maybe those mistakes won't happen again would be fantastic it's much more effective you know anytime you meet someone on a human level you start to have a connection to them this is how when meeting someone who is of a different culture than you who you you know maybe never would have interacted with you start to learn and then they're your friend and we start to become a community and it's the same concept of figuring out it's not just okay i stole that money and and obviously that's a bad thing it's because you stole that money i couldn't buy my grandchild a present and you, then you think about, oh, well, I would hate to have that happen to my brother or my nephew. And I never thought about it that way. And maybe the victim hearing from the accused saying, you know, well, I did it because I had to feed my little brother. And then figuring out how, how do we get past this? And what's a good resolution here? It's empowering for everyone. I would think. Yeah. And just having that human connection can be liberating yeah. to somebody who feels trapped, it seems to me, in a life of crime, something that can pull them out. You made reference to this question that I have too, and this was an answer to a question that was posed by the League of Women Voters, and that's something I want to tell people to do, is to go to vote411.org, which is something that the League of Women Voters has put up, and you can find answers. A lot of the judge candidates have answered questions posed by the League of Women Voters. And that's where I got a lot of the material that I'm asking you about was from that website. But you answered the League in part that the court should not be a one-size-fits-all justice system, that each case must be examined on the basis of many factors in order to determine an outcome that is fair and available under the law. Now that was what caused me to pause. What outcomes available under the law are there? <laughs> and when it comes to sentencing, when people are before the court. Yeah, sure. So everything is not black and white. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, it is not just you go to jail or you don't go to jail. We no longer have to should or do subscribe to that is the only answer here. In many cases, especially in like certain specialty cases, like in domestic violence cases, they always look at partnering in some sort of services. Now, my background, part of what I do as an attorney is looking at figuring out what services my client needs and then presenting that to the county attorney as a potential alternative sentencing plan or an alternative resolution to the case and seeing if they will bite on what I've already worked out for my client. Of course, with my client's consent. But it doesn't have to be jail or nothing. We can be looking at what does this person actually need for success. When we're looking at drug cases, the no-brainer is do we have a drug component piece, a substance abuse evaluation, have they made progress and they've already been doing that? Should we give them credit for what they've done and, and how far they've come? Is this a case that 
you know, needs to continue to be prosecuted or whether or not we're going to be looking at fines. So those additional conditions are absolutely available to the judge in order to put conditions on a probated sentence or probation if that's applicable or, you know, in the alternative. Individualizing everyone that comes in the court is extremely important. Someone may have committed a crime because of a certain reason. Someone may have committed a crime for a different reason. And those reasons, if someone committed a crime because of drug addiction, putting them in jail is not going to stop the drug addiction. Someone committed a crime because they can't feed their children, putting them in jail is just going to further disrupt that. So we looked at drug addiction, substance abuse here. We look at maybe can we give them a list of second chance employers over here that will hire someone with a record. There is many ways for the district court as a system and the judges to be benefiting people who come through the system. So that leads me to another question, and maybe you've been talking about that already because you made a statement that the district court can be an asset by seeking progress through partnering with the community. And I'm just wondering if that's what you're talking about, or do you envision other remedies that have to do with partnering with the community? Yeah, so that's really a global statement. But to parse it out, one of the things that I was working with the Youth Detention Center before it was closed down, in various talks with the uh, mayor's office and the director of the Youth Detention Center in order to try to start partnering community services for the youth that ended up in the detention center, whether they were there for three days, whether they were there for 30 days, whether they were there for a longer time because they were in circuit court, so that when they left the youth detention center, they would have something tailored to them to assist them in cutting down that recidivism rate. You know, do they need a big brother, big sister program? Do they need an activity where they're learning how to rap or they're learning how to write poetry with a mentor program. We have so many community partnerships. I also have lots of connections with the mental health treatment community. I've continued to expand those connections as a defense attorney as well as the drug treatment community. So looking at figuring out how we start bringing those known connections to the court system I think is imperative. We often rely on like the same three or four places. There are many more alternatives that I've found, but I'm having to present them to the court rather than the court knowing, hey, there's this huge volume. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would like to see is for us to look at maybe putting social workers in the court system. In juvenile court, in the criminal courts, there was a a time when I was working with another individual who was talking about having some sort of kiosk in the courthouse where we just put the information that was necessary. This is where you go for jobs. This is where you go for food stamps. This is where you go for unemployment. This is where you go for drug treatment. This is how you take out an EPO. Helping the average person navigate the court system and navigate the 
benefit system or the partnerships within the community, I think is is an important asset. I read on your, I think it was on your website that you're a member of the jail policy committee. That's correct. And so I'd like to hear your thinking on the 12 deaths. I believe it was in 10 months at the Louisville Metro Corrections. And I was going to refer to the ACLU as saying, we don't need more jails. What we need is care, not cages. And I was just wondering what you thought, because I know that there are a couple studies, at least, that have been made on our current Louisville Metro Corrections, that it's, it's a poorly designed building, that in fact they need to build a new jail, which apparently will cost $430 million. And there's a huge overcrowding problem as well. So I think most of those deaths were by suicide. And if I'm not mistaken, maybe you know this, they had to do with overdosing with drugs. So what are your feelings about this whole issue? Is it a question of building a new jail? Or could that money be better spent in things like what you were talking about, more social services, more other kinds of diversions? Yeah, so I do serve on the jail policy committee. I am the the private bar member. So I, I represent the private bar on the committee. There are partners on the committee from the Commonwealth attorney to uh, circuit and district judges, various programs, the public defenders on there, lots of partnerships on there. The, the point of the jail policy committee is to figure out how to bring down the jail population. And so we, we look at all of these things I bring issues that I see as a private bar member, such as the jail not releasing people on time, talking about, you know, how do we get more people out of custody? What are other ways to get people out of custody? We talk about various programs that we can institute. Also, you probably saw on my website that I am endorsed by FOP Corrections, which is the corrections union, the jail union. And the reason that I've gotten this endorsement is because I am so vocal about the problems that I see within the jail. The union is not the administration. It is the, the, the men and women who work in the jail. And FOP is? Uh, Fraternal Order of Police. Okay. So I was endorsed by that FOP specifically only corrections and then the sheriffs as well mm-hmm. not the LMPD the Louisville Metro Police Department but one of the things I've been extremely vocal about is the fact that the jail does not have adequate mental health services ultimately many people that are going into the jail are not being evaluated or treated uh, properly when they're in there, a lot uh, because the staff that are there are not trained for these types of cases, and they don't have enough mental health staff on hand. What I 100% believe is that we need to stop housing the drug addicted, the mentally ill, and the poor. I think I heard this actually from a colleague of mine, that the jail is the uh, number one treatment facility for the, for the drug addicted and the mentally ill, and obviously we are doing a horrible job, we're not giving them treatment. What we need to be doing is figuring out how do we keep people out of jail? 
How do we stop them from going there in the first place? So that the men and women in corrections are there to do what they're supposed to do, which is to handle people that really are supposed to be in jail because they're a danger to the community under the law. But that's not who we're housing there. We're overpopulated because judges are issuing warrants for things that they should never issue warrants for. Prosecutors are asking for warrants on things that they should never ask for warrants on. Insane bonds are being issued for people. People that couldn't even pay $1,000 if their bond was $1,000 might have a ten dollars or $20,000 bond on a case that is supposed to be a probation recommendation case. So there are certain types of cases where you are supposed to get probation on them. So why are we holding someone in jail when they are innocent until proven guilty? So something I'm very passionate about, sorry if I got on a little bit of a tangent, but I do think that we need to be using our funding to be looking at mental health services, drug treatment services, other additional services. There was a a service for a while called The Living Room, and the funding went away. Uh, That would be a great place to put funding. And what that was doing is people that were were leaving, if they they did get picked up, it was kind of a stopgap so we could figure out what services that they needed so they wouldn't come back. They might need additional housing help. They might have needed additional treatment services like we've talked about. They might have needed job security or figure out how to get on the list for some benefits. There are numerous programs that we've defunded in order to overpopulate our jails Mm -hmm. rather than Mm -hmm. funding the services that we need so that our jail and the people that are housed there and the people that are work there are safe. And this goes to a kind of philosophical question. I've got two ways of looking at the justice system. Is it a system whose goal is to seek revenge or punishment for bad behavior? Or is the goal to reduce crime and recidivism? And are those two mutually exclusive? I mean, if all you're thinking about is you want to punish somebody for something they did that was illegal, then are you are not looking at ways to actually reduce crime just by punishing? Or are those two compatible with each other? So you can punish them and you can rehabilitate them both. But I just wonder if that's why we spend so much of our money on punishing people because, in fact, we're not interested in reducing crime. Right. We're more interested in punishing people. Right. And that's why we have to have that that additional piece. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think that they have to be mutually exclusive. I think that they can be compatible. The reality is, is that we do have a penal code and a system for a reason. And in certain circumstances, punishment is necessary and it's just under the law. But having that be is the only remedy it would create and does create these problems within our community and within our system. And this is why electing judges and electing judges with a perspective that you appreciate and a perspective that is important and will benefit our community is so important is because a judge is somewhat autonomous. How they run their courtroom 
is different than how the next judge runs their courtroom and the next judge runs their courtroom. So having a bench that is full of fair, like-minded judges is the way that we move our system forward. This is the way that we start creating progression. It's the way that we start looking at this is how the acceptable model should be. I do think that there are multiple players within the court system who have multiple goals. Oftentimes, those are at odds, and the, the judge can merge those goals. What has to happen is that we have to have judges that do believe in the importance of stopping recidivism, in the importance of humanizing the individuals that come in front of them, mm -hmm. and the importance of giving those additional pieces only if that's what is just and appropriate. I mean, some cases are resolved with who was harmed by possession of drugs, the individual. So should the, that individual go to jail or should they have drug treatment only? Well, that makes much more sense. But if you commit a crime that causes some additional harm, punishment might be appropriate. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, that's on a case-by-case basis. But making sure that someone is sitting in a leadership position in order to push that system forward is imperative. Do you ever encounter what you might consider to be frivolous cases that only waste time and money in the courts? And is that a problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I have often seen in my work as a defense attorney over on the family court side and when I've done some civil work, people abusing the court system, people using the court system for their own gain, people filing emergency protective orders when it's not appropriate, when they're using it in an attempt to gain on a custody case. I've seen people be falsely accused of crimes. That is a huge waste of time. I don't know how we resolve that problem though. Because the flip side is if we put barriers on people, a gatekeeper for someone else to decide how things can be filed outside of a judge who is looking at the facts in front of them, then do we create a system where victims cannot get a day in court? We might. And so I don't have a good answer for that. I do think that there needs to be more consequences for people who are filing false charges or who are abusing the system in that way. I don't think that that would cause global change. I, I, I don't believe that someone would hear through the grapevine that this person got in trouble and then they wouldn't try it themselves. I think it might stop the individual from doing it again if there were consequences. So there are no consequences right now? In theory, you could be charged with perjury or filing false police report. You know, there are laws on the books that allow punishment or consequences, contempt of court, for certain behaviors. In reality, I don't see it happening a lot. Of course... Some of that may be perspective as well. You know, my view is that they are abusing the court system. Their view or the court's view, maybe it's not 
an abuse of the system, but maybe they just didn't make their case. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's what's hard about a court system that relies on humans' judgment and perspective. Right. And the fact that we live in a country right now where there is so much misinformation being spread, you know, you can see where people can bring things thinking that they have a case or being told by some source that they are in the right when they're way off. You know, like the guy that went to the that pizza place because he thought that Hillary Clinton was there in the basement, what was it, eating children or something? The unfortunate part of the internet and, yeah. and lack of, you know, the internet has brought us so many good things, but it's also people hear things and believe without actually doing their own investigation and their own research. Mm -hmm. That is not my style as an attorney. Everything that, that I do and look at ha involves research of the law or research of the facts. Mm -hmm. As an officer of the court, that's, that's what's so important about my job is to always make sure that I speak with, with some sort of education behind what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But that's not the reality of most people, nor can it be or maybe should it be mm -hmm. um, in every situation but yeah people really do rely on information erroneously all the time mm -hmm. I see it on next door yeah <laughs> on that app <laughs> all the time so well I want to thank you Karen Faulkner for coming and thank you and and talking about the justice system you've really educated me I really appreciate it thank you so much would you like to give your website Yes, thank you. So you can find me at votekarenfaulkner.com. That has all of my contact information. And, of course, if you uh, want to reach out to me in that way, feel free to do so. I'm also on Facebook at Karen Faulkner for District Court Judge and Instagram at Vote Karen Faulkner and on Twitter at Vote Faulkner. Very good. Anything else? Well, I just really appreciate the time, and I'm asking everyone to look me up, check me out, and uh, remember to vote fairness, vote progress, and vote Faulkner on November 8th. And just to remind everyone that Forward Radio does not endorse any particular candidates or pieces of legislation, but we do endorse the need for an informed electorate. And as such, we offer equal time to all registered candidates for any particular office. You can get in touch with us at forwardradio.org. And that does it for this edition of Election Connection. Remember to research judge candidates and other candidates who will be appearing on your ballot November 8th by going to vote411.org and also you can visit votesmart.org. Both of these websites are nonpartisan and provide a wealth of information on candidates running for office. And also to see a sample ballot or find your polling place, visit govoteky.com. Hope to see you next week on Election Connection.